Welcome, Sexplorers, to another episode of Sexplorations with me, your host, Adelina Adler. And today we're talking about something that's super important to me. Uh, as soon as I came across it, I knew it had to be shared. Um, that being said, however, um, a bit of a content warning or trigger warning for our listeners here. The following episode will eventually mention cases referring to rape and or sexual violence. However, as a survivor myself, I can assure you that I will do my best to discuss these sensitive subjects as mindfully as possible. In fact, this episode contains information within it that will, I hope, not only lend peace of mind to several survivors, but also serve as a powerful tool for us moving forward in understanding our bodies and in defending ourselves from a system that, unfortunately, understands next to nothing about them. Um, don't worry, guys, I will be sure to give you fair warning before I go into that segment so you can still listen in and learn about the core concept of today's lessons if you'd like. Now, today's lesson is about arousal non-concordance. So today we will be demythifying a common misconception in the world of sex. Now, how often have you heard or come across the idea that if your body shows signs of arousal, it must mean that you're aroused. You like what's going on. Or along the same vein, if your body doesn't look or feel like it's into it, then you must not be into it. See, there's a correlation being drawn here between physiological and psychological arousal, but as any good scientist knows, correlation does not equal causation. And while these two dimensions of arousal can most certainly agree with one another on many an occasion, extensive peer-reviewed research has shown that not only is this often not the case, but the level of discrepancy between the two is quite significant. The textbook Exploring the Dimensions of Human Sexuality explains that human sexuality involves the interrelationship of biological, physiological, Oh, biological, psychological, and sociocultural dimensions. Yes, the biological and physiological are one thing there. So it's biological, psychological, and sociocultural. Now, these dimensions are independently but cooperatively influencing us uh, all the time. They fluctuate, they change, they adapt, and they're influencing us at different levels all at once on to different degrees. And we've already touched on uh, some sociocultural influences and themes here on this program. But what I want you to note here are the distinctions between the biophysiological and the psychological. The book goes on to explain that the biological dimensions of our sexuality involves our physical appearance, especially the development of uh, physical sexual characteristics, our responses to sexual stimulation, and our ability to produce or control fertility and our growth and development in general. Now, um, the psychological dimension is the cognitive respect, how we mentally process our arousal. What, what turns us on conceptually? A good example I can think of for this sensation is what happens when you're reading erotica, for example. There is technically nothing physical going on, but your mind certainly becomes aroused. So what happens when you're reading said erotica and it gets you going a bit? 
But when you go for the old reach and diddle, you realize your genitals don't seem to have been paying attention. Yeah, they, they uh, MIA for that memo. Uh, so what's going on? <laughs> for those with erectile dysfunction, this scenario sounds all too familiar. The mind is willing, but the body is chilling. It's a great source of frustration. And sometimes this frustration can spread as um, the sexual partner in turn can feel like maybe they're not desirable enough. It causes a lot of insecurity on all sides. Similarly, sex coaches have shared stories about female clients who describe being incredibly turned on, e even experiencing orgasms, only to find that they're barely lubricated or wet. I mean, I, I know this certainly has happened to me in my experiences. So, um, what's up? <laughs> no pun intended there. Are you, are, are we broken? No, sweethearts. See, we have bought into this myth that physical and psychological arousal are the same creature, or at least that they're conjoined twins that always ride along together. But again, that's not the case. A meta-analysis of several experiments dealing with arousal concordance or uh, subjective genital agreement found that, quote, subjective experience or self-report and general measures of sexual arousal do not always agree. Examples of low subjective genital agreement abound in both clinical and academic sexology. Some men report feeling sexual arousal without concomitant genital changes. That means uh, genital changes that are in agreement with uh, the experienced arousal. And this was done by Rieger, Shivers, and Bailey in their 2005 uh, research. And experimental manipulations can increase penile erection without affecting subjective reports of sexual arousal. And that's by Bach, Brown, and Barlow in 1999, and Jansen and Evergard, Evier, I am sorry, Evergard, those two, in 1993. I apologize for butchering all of these uh, scientists' names. But basically, in layman's terms, um, what's going on here is that some men reported uh, feeling aroused without um, their penises reacting. Um, likewise, when their penises experienced touch, their bodies reflexively reacted while they themselves weren't actually turned on or stimulated. So similarly, some women show genital responses without reporting any experience of sexual arousal, again, according to Chivers and Bailey, and self-report and self-reported sexual arousal, uh, moreover, is subject to impression management, as in the greater reluctance among women in high sex guilt to report feeling sexually aroused, hold on, as in the greater reluctance among women high in sex guilt, there we go, to report feeling sexually aroused, and that is from research from Morokov in 1985. So we can see that this dissonance is present in women as well. And not only that, but women are more prone to adjusting their answers about being sexually aroused due to sociological pressures and shame. Interesting. Um, another, another reference source showed that in studies measuring women's physiological reactions and subjective descriptions of arousal when viewing different kinds of porn, get ready for this, 
there will be about a 10% overlap between what her genitals are doing and what she dials in as her arousal. Just 10%. In men, uh, genital response and subjective arousal overlap is about 50% of the time. So basically, the predictive relationship between genital response and subjective experience is between 10 and 50%, which is a significantly enormous range. Now, this disconnect between the physiological and psychological arousal response is called arousal non-concordance. And I first came across this term through a TED Talk by sex educator Emily Nagowski titled The Truth About Unwanted Arousal. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend it. It's available on YouTube. It's available on um, the TED website. She's also the author of a book called Come As You Are, which delves really nice and deep into female sexuality and uh, myths and such like that. Check it out. Um, In the beginning of this talk, Nagowski explains the neurological distinction between how our brain experiences a pleasure. Um, She talks about the reward center of the brain and how it's divided into three separate systems. Um, This is, again, a nice abridged version of what's going on neurologically, but I really do enjoy her explanation here. She begins by explaining that there's the liking system, which are our opioid hotspots that measure hedonic impact. Basically, they examine a stimulus and see, uh, does the stimulus feel good or does it feel bad? And to what degree? How much? Uh, they basically uh, go through all of our what we're receiving and gauge and measure that. Then there's our wanting system, that dopaminergic network, which drives us either towards or away from stimuli, i.e., uh, she gives the example of a toddler following us around asking for uh, another cookie. Uh, and it's because they've received uh, responses from that opioid hotspot liking system that's like oh yeah we like this and the wanting system kind of creates a dependency on that it goes oh let's, let's let's go after that so while liking and wanting are related processes in the brain they are not the same further there is the learning system and this is uh, where we get to like Pavlovian classic conditioning. And I've mentioned this before. If you're not familiar, uh, basically Pavlov uh, conditioned behavior in dogs. So these dogs would drool at the sight of food. This is an unconditioned stimulus. You do not need to teach someone, or teach a dog to drool and salivate at the sight of food. They're hungry. But what he did do is managed to condition and create a relationship between the sound of a bell and food. This is what we called the conditioned stimulus. So the dogs became used to associating the sound of this bell with food to the point that finally when they heard the bell, they would salivate. Now, Nagoski takes this example and she posits the question, does the drool mean the dog wants to eat the bell? Does it mean that the dog finds the bell delicious? No. Again, there's just, uh, the bell is a food-related condition to stimulus. It is not actually food at all. 
Um, so the separation, this separation between the systems of liking, wanting, and learning provide the framework for understanding arousal non-concordance, which Nagoski defines as a lack of predictive relationship between your physiological response and your subjective experience of pleasure and desire, which she explains happens in every emotional slash motivational system, including sex. So while your body may or may not react to stimuli, especially things that are sexually adjacent, that doesn't mean that your subjective experience of what's going on necessarily agrees. Your body is working on its programming. Bell, drool, food. Bell, drool, food. And uh, you can find examples of this in several different places. Uh, fans of the silly little band uh, Ninja Sex Party may be familiar with the song No Reason Boner. <laughs> you, can, you can probably guess what it's about, which bemoans the random erection so commonly experienced by uh, those of us with penises. But while the song claims that the phenomenon baffles scientists, I mean, we got the answer right here. The culprit is arousal non-concordance. Another really uh, fun example about where ANC is uh, relevant is in the asexual community. I was reading through a forum thread on asexuality.org that was discussing the application of ANC to the asexual experience, um, where they described that the body may sometimes react to uh, the sight of something sexually adjacent or sexually arousing, such as uh, a naked figure, but the desire to actually cognitively engage in sex is entirely absent. So again, while the body is reacting to something that's a sexual stimuli, the mind and, and the will is not wanting to engage in any sex whatsoever. And yes, this too is an example of arousal non-concordance. Um, earlier, we talked about those women uh, who were unable to uh, lubricate uh, properly despite being highly aroused. Um, Nagoski gives a, a few other examples, including the story about her friend of hers who was trying out uh, a power play session with a BDSM partner. Uh, yeah, I know. Here we go with a BDSM counter again. <laughs> so she um, she gets tied up, arms above her head, and uh, there's a bar uh, against her her clitoris and she's straddling this bar the guy ties her up rigs her up and all that and he leaves and then uh, she finds that she's bored <laughs> so when he comes back she she shares this with him she goes hey uh i'm bored <laughs> and uh, he looks down at said bar and then replies well then why are you wet oh <laughs> so it's, it is sex-related to have pressure directly against your clitoris, right? It makes sense, then, that your body reflexively reacts, that her body reflexively reacted to it. Now, does that tell him whether she actually wants or likes what's happening? No. What does, then? Her voice, her, her actually saying it. Another example um, she gives is a story about uh, another lady who... When uh, she was with her partner, she turns to them and says, Oh, I want you so badly. I want you right now. But when the partner reached down and, you know, went to go do the diddle, 
uh, they got really sad and disappointed because she was dry. So the partner just assumed she was being nice. Like, oh, you don't really want it. You're just trying to be sweet. Thanks, but no. Meanwhile, the poor lady was baffled because she really did want to have sex. It's just her, her vagina wasn't cooperating there. And unless there is pain, ladies, in which case, please seek out medical help. This is simply ANC at work, arousal non-discordance at work here. And there is no shame in this. Heck, buy some lube. We all need it from time to time. It's here to help us. It's, it's here to help us. This is why we have the technology tools and little equipment to help us along the way. Um, but in all of these things, the only honest measure of consent and what's really turning you on are your words. Your reported subjective experience. So speak up, speak out, listen to your mind, not your body. And when someone shares what they want or don't want or like or don't like with you, listen. Again, this non-predictive relationship happens in every emotional slash motivational system we experience. Nagelsky puts it like this. If you bite into a wormy apple and your mouth waters and then you decide to not eat the, you know, nasty apple, nobody looks at you and says, well, you say no, but your body says yes. You're, you're drooling. You just don't want to admit you like that nasty apple. So why does this happen so often when it comes to our sexual arousal? Nobody does that when you're refusing to eat a nasty food. So why does it happen? General response just means it was a sex-related stimulus. Doesn't mean it was wanted or liked. It certainly doesn't mean it was consented to. Your body's natural reflexive reactions do not determine or indicate what you want. And that's science, motherfuckers. Do not let people gaslight you with your body. Do not allow your body to gaslight you. That's the main message and takeaway here for this episode, guys, before we get into uh, the heavy bit. So uh, here it is again, content warning, trigger warning. The following is going to discuss um, sexual assault. Uh, but before you go, and I understand if you don't want to continue onwards there, this does bring up a lot of difficult, uncomfortable, and painful emotions for many, very, a lot of conflicting things here. So I don't, you know, I don't blame you. But I, I do hope you did take that away, take that lesson away, and you can kind of see where I'm going with that, all right? If you want, um, before you go, guys, I do... I do want to say that a lot of these uh, resources and sources I've gathered today, I am making available for free on Patreon, on all the social medias and stuff for you to look at, including the TED Talk by um, by Emily. So go ahead and look that up, guys. Um, please, it, it is totally worth sharing that information and learning a little bit more about that. <sighs> And until next time, for you guys, I love you. I will see you. Uh, but for those of you who are sticking around, all right, let's get into it. Unfortunately, there have been too many legal cases where victims of sexual assault have been dismissed due to signs of physiological arousal responses. Uh, 
from the victim, such as in some cases, even orgasm. In such cases, the attorneys made sure to conflate these physiological responses with consent, even in cases dealing with assault against minors. Let that sink in for a second. And now breathe. A friend of mine, Mayo, also discussed the confusion and pressure he felt due to his body's response to unwanted sexual contact. He said, There are many times in the past I wish I would have willed myself to disengage rather than feeling obligated to continue to perform based only on my physical arousal cue. It's hard to think of myself as manipulated into sex, much less as having been raped. You see, because his body reacted, even though he didn't want the advances, he felt he had to want it on some level then. Plus, his assailant insisted that he wanted it because of his body's reflexive response to the unwanted contact. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It does to me. Do not let people gaslight you with your body. Do not let your body gaslight you. Genital response just means it was a sex-related stimulus. It does not mean it was wanted or liked. And it certainly doesn't mean it was consented to. I remember being a preteen and uh, learning a bit about rape and wondering how a man could be raped aside from anal penetration. Basically, at the, at the time, in my young, naive mind, I didn't understand how he could become erect without being subjectively aroused. After all, didn't you only get hard when you were turned on? Well, as anyone who has ever woken up with a morning stiffy can tell you, no, that is, that is not the case at all. But again, the education on these matters was abysmal in those days, and in many respects, it still remains so. We certainly didn't have talks about consent and coercion. And again, there was very much this persistent myth that sexually your body reacts the way your mind wants it to. This is why learning about arousal non-concordance is essential. I know too many male friends who have been subjected to statutory rape and other forms of sexual assault who've dismissed their experiences or rationalized them as okay because of their physiological responses. I know women who've also experienced this cognitive dissonance as well. There's a lot of strange mixed emotions, a lot of self-blame that arises from this. For victims and survivors like my friend who have felt physical pleasure responses during their heinous assaults, the feelings of confusion, guilt, and shame are astronomical. What does that say about me? Did I actually want it? How could my body betray me? There may be shame, feelings of self-resentment, and even disgust. And even if, if you're certain you didn't want or enjoy any of it, there may be disgust and resentment from parties outside of the experience who find themselves skeptical because they found out how our bodies reacted and those experiences have shaped how we view our bodies and sexuality so many degrees, sometimes in such warped hideous ways. These were the people 
who we're supposed to understand. The amount of damage that comes from this myth is massive when we talk about sexual assault and how it's treated socially, personally, and legally. And this is one of the main reasons I wanted to share this knowledge with you. It's one of the main reasons I took time to re-record this episode without the choppiness because it is that important. It is time to break this myth and spread the word. Because again, I'll say it louder for the people in the back. Your body's natural reflexive reactions do not determine or indicate what you want. Genital response just means there was sex-related stimuli. It doesn't mean it was wanted or liked, and it certainly doesn't mean it was consented to. I am so sorry that anyone ever made you feel otherwise, that anyone ever invalidated your pain or weaponized your body against you. And I'm so sorry for all the suffering this lie has caused. Know that there are champions out here fighting for you. For me, too. For us. Knowledge is power, and we're wielding the fuck out of that shit, so there's one less power play in trauma's toolbox that can fuck with us. In closing her talk, Nagalski invited people to have the brave conversation about arousal non-concordance, and that's why I decided to record this episode, because it's incredibly important for me for so many reasons. It is my earnest hope that awareness about ANC spreads like wildfire. The benefits of getting this knowledge out there can't be overstated. If you'd like information on this, I'll actually be sharing my sources, including the TED Talk by Nagowski, both on Patreon and Facebook for public access. Please share the knowledge, even if it's just a conversation with a friend who needs to hear it, your friend with ED, your friend who wants to know if she's broken, your friends who have faced sexual trauma. This is the kind of information that has profound potential to make the world a significantly better place. So I hope you will share and spread the word. Thanks once again to all my Patreons for your continued support. Um, I appreciate every single bit of you guys. Um, if you want to become a patron, uh, you can find me at patreon.com backslash backslash sexplorations again that is patreon.com backslash sexplorations thanks to my patrons so far Devin Tyler, Chris Elliott, R.D. Hannah, Emily Sievert and our one-time donors Natty Sunshine and her friend from Germany as well as Papa Bruce thank you guys we're getting closer and closer to my 1500 benchmark um, once I reach that goal I will I will sign up for the Somatica Institute's certification classes, guys. So I'm already at $500. We're almost there. Again, anything you can give is super appreciated. If you want, uh, you can cash at me at Adelina Adler. Uh, or just seek me out and find out my information on uh, PayPal. And I'm trying to do my best to get that all set up. I just got my DBA, and so you'll be hearing information on that soon. 
thank you guys once again for all of this. I'm sorry that we had to go into some deep, dark places, but hopefully at the end of it all, we come away empowered. We come away with knowledge. We come away with something that helps us understand our bodies and our lives and our sexuality a little bit better. Thank you guys. Until next time, stay sexy, friends.